absolutely central to the rise of the Roman Empire. But is there any truth to this story of the Trojan refugee? Why did this unlikely character from the Iliad become so prominent in Rome? And did the Romans really believe it? Today's Classical Wisdom Speaks podcast is with Anthony Adolph, a professional genealogist, broadcaster, and writer of numerous books on ancestry and general history, including his most recent in Search of Aeneas, classical myth or Bronze Age hero, of which we'll discuss today. But before we delve in, a quick note of appreciation for our Classical Wisdom Society members who make this podcast possible. If you aren't already, please go to classicalwisdom.com and subscribe or check out our free newsletter. Now, how much history is myth and how much myth is history? Well, hello and thank you for joining me today. Um, Anthony, you've written a really interesting book called In Search of Aeneas, Classical Myth or Bronze Age Hero. And I know a lot of my listeners are, are very familiar with who Aeneas is, but I think it's always good to start you know, with the premise, get the basics covered, get everybody back up to speed. And, and, and as such, could you kind of give us a brief overview of, of who is this sort of mythical character? Oh, certainly, yes. I think a lot of your listeners will know maybe part of Aeneas's story, a bit here or a bit there. But actually, no one, as far as I know, has ever actually attempted, no one's ever been silly enough to try and attempt to write the whole story of Aeneas from life to death. So he started, he, he was born in uh, near Troy. He was born in the mountains near Troy. Um, he was the son of Anchises, who was the king of Dardania, who ruled that part of the Troad. Um, and the love goddess Aphrodite, who the Romans called Venus. And he spent the first part of his life on Mount Ida being looked after by nymphs and was then taken to where his father Anchises was. And Anchises then took him to Troy, where Aeneas grew up in the household of his brother-in-law, which is a little detail Homer tells us in his Iliad. Um, then he became friends with Paris, who was one of the sons of King Priam, and they went on the disastrous, dip, supposedly diplomatic mission to Greece, which resulted in Paris abducting Helen and causing the whole of the Trojan War to start. Um, he was then one of the main leaders of the Trojans during the Trojan War. Homer will always list, lists the leaders of the Trojans and always includes Aeneas as one of the, the Aristoi, one of the, the great leaders of, of the Trojans. Um, he was there right the way through and was then present, of course, when the, the, the fatal day came when the, when the Trojan horse was presented to the walls of Troy and the Trojans let the horse in against Aeneas's better judgment, but he couldn't do anything about it. Um, he then witnessed the, the destruction of the city, did his best to save the city, but failed, and then led the survivors of the Trojans away, um, founded a, built a fleet. Um, off they sailed through the Mediterranean, um, and finally, after many adventures, came to the um, shores of Italy, having in the process um, gone to Carthage and encountered Dido, fallen in love with her, had a torrid love affair, but then followed the will of fate and left to found Italy, despite the fact that he left Dido heartbroken and then she committed suicide. 
Um, and then in Italy, first of all, he went to Kume, where he went down into Hades and met his father, who died by then, and received confirmation of the prophecies that were leading him to the, the, the shores of Italy, where he was to found a, a city which would eventually give rise to the Roman Empire. Um, he then fought a war in Italy against the Rutulians, who rather resented him being there, um, won it, founded the city of Lavinium. It's quite a long story, isn't it? Um, ruled there successfully for a few years, was then killed in battle, at which point he was then taken up to Mount Olympus by his mother Aphrodite and became a god. And that is, in a nutshell, the story of Aeneas. And it's quite a story. I mean, it really is. is. I mean, you you said it was long, but you actually did a quite a succinct summary of it. I'm very impressed. I left out out a couple of details, I must admit. Yes. (laughs) Well, I mean, and and you say, you know, it is a very important story. It's an important myth. It's very integral. Uh, And so it is interesting to sort of have it, you know, fully laid out in front of us from from beginning to end. Um, But I guess so many of those elements of it are, are extremely mythical, you know, the, the kind of Cleo seeking going into the underworld that kind of seems to happen again and again in, in mythology and, you know, being the gods and the goddesses assumed the Olympus. But, you know, here at Classical Wisdom, we've been talking a lot about the relationship between history and myth and that that saying that history is myth and myth is history. So, you know, I, I want to kind of get to the nuts and bolts of where the story of Aeneas is like. Is it was he real, and does he need to be real? As that's a, okay. Aeneas doesn't need to be real. No, the 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 bulk of Aeneas's importance lies in 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 the myths that were were, were told about him, um, and they're wonderful myths that we can certainly enjoy. Aeneas, we can enjoy the whole story um, without worrying about whether he was real or not. And and just enjoying him as as a wonderful a wonderful piece of mythology. Um, as to whether he actually was real is something I perhaps come on to um, l- later on because there are there are suggestions that, that that at the core of this extraordinary man with this extraordinary life there could actually have been some some real events. Um, but um, yeah, I mean it's it's, it's di- I know you on your website you've you've, um, you've you've talked a lot about this question of whether whether myth is history or whether history is myth and. Um, and I and I I'd say actually my book would probably co- does contribute to that debate of yours um, in probably quite an important way in the sense that actually Aeneas's myth really is the it is the myth that underpinned the rise of the Roman Empire and when, when the Romans came to be the great force that they that that, that we know they were um, in the back of their mind they had this idea that Aeneas was their ancestor and that the Trojans were their ancestors and they were carrying on what had happened um, in the Trojan War um, and 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 it carried on right the way through in, in the dark ages when, when kingdoms were trying to form themselves out of the chaos that had resulted from the collapse of the Roman Empire they looked to Aeneas through mainly through the words of the Virgil through Virgil's Aeneid they looked to him for inspiration because he was the archetypal refugee who'd, who'd come from somewhere else just as they had come into in, come into Italy um, come into Western Europe and then founded kingdoms and 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 created peace and order or at least laid the foundations of the peace and order that would come with the Roman Empire which in the dark ages everyone was, was harking back to and trying to recreate and then it carried on as as as, um, as set texts in in schools in Western Europe it was always the story of Aeneas first of all in the Iliad and then in Virgil's Aeneid, which was taught 
all the way through. And in some cases, in our English public schools, it's pretty much the only thing that was taught. Um, and so when you sort of hear about these young men from Britain going off to found the British Empire, going off from Hazelmere and Godalming or, or Chobham, off, off to carve out sort of colonies in Africa and India, and you think, how on earth? Why did they do this? What, what gave them the courage and the nerve? Well, the answer is in their heads. They were remembering these stirring scenes from the Iliad and from the Aeneid and the deeds of Aeneas. And, and they were sort of taking great strength. They were drawing great strength and inspiration from that. So, so really, his myth has been there right the way through the history of Western Europe. Um, and I'd say is many, in many ways the most important myth of all. Wow! Yeah, that's 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 a big claim, but uh, I like it. I well, like it's bold. Written, I've just written his. I've written his biography, and so. But I do think so. I mean, what other myth? What other myth has had such a potent, living force in the history of Western Europe? Um, and and it's 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 a myth that's it's a myth that's in one way driven history, and in another way it's fed constantly fed off actual historical events. Um, for example. Um, when, when you look at uh, Julius Caesar, you think of all the things, extraordinary things he did, almost sort of superhuman things for a, for a, a mere, at that stage, tin pot, little sort of, you know, the Roman Empire was nothing before he came along. And the things he did were staggering. Um, but of course, he believed he was descended from Aeneas. And so I'm sure that when Caesar thought, OK, I'm going to go conquer Gaul today, or I'm going to cross the English Channel, cross the Channel and go to Britain. I mean, honestly, no one had ever done it. I think the thing, what gave him the nerve to do it was Aeneas. It was the th thought that Aeneas was his ancestor. Um, and, so, and so history was driven by the myth, but also history then caused the myth to grow. So for, just for example, um, once the, the Roman Empire had adopted Aeneas as their founder, then you see cities and countries all over the Mediterranean thinking, okay, well, if the Romans think they're Trojans and we want to get on with the Romans, let's find our own connection to the Trojan story. And this happens all the time. So, for example, little uh, the city of Segesta in Sicily, just for example, wanted an alliance with Rome. Um, and so they started minting coins showing Aeneas on it and claiming that Aeneas had stopped there on his journey. And, of course, that helped them secure their alliance with Rome. And then when Virgil came to write the Aeneid, he knew the story that Aeneas had been to Segesta, so he included that in the story. So, so the myth grew from real political events. So, as I say, right the way through the history of Western Europe, Aeneas's myth has been there, driving it forward and also growing as a result. Okay, so we're talking about sort of the historical elements of this myth. So could you give me some background on this sort of historical period in which Aeneas's life sort of unfolded and some of the major events that occurred during his time? Yeah, that, that's the easy bit. So we're in the Bronze Age. Um, we've had this, the long Stone Age and uh, people have discovered how to use bronze and we've had the rise of cities and the establishment of kingdoms. Um, and we're in approximately, now, of course, everyone argues over when the Trojan War took place, but the general consensus now seems to be about 1250 BC. And that's what I've stuck to um, in, in the book. Well, that's what people who know much better than I do think. Um, so, and the setting, the setting is, is Troy, which is in the northwestern corner of Turkey, what is now Turkey, and was then Anatolia which was part of the, and it was part of the Hittite Empire. 
So Aeneas is Aeneas's father, Anchises, was the king of a tiny little kingdom called Dardania, which was up in Mount Ida near Troy. And he was a cousin of King Priam of Troy. And Priam was the overking of quite a few of these little sub-kingdoms. And Homer tells us exactly who they all were in the Iliad. Um, and then Priam must, in fact, have been a sub-king of, if it existed, by the way, he must have been a sub-king of the Hittite great king. And the Hittite great king ruled the whole of Anatolia, one of the, and it was one of the great powers at the time. Um, and um, uh, so, that, so they were part of the Hittites. Uh, the real people, if, if they existed. Um, to the southeast, far to the southeast, you had Egypt, which was ruled by Ramesses II. I can say that with some confidence because he ruled for such a long time that he covers almost all the possible dates when the Trojan War could have taken place. Um, and then to the, the west over the Mediterranean Sea was Greece, which was then under the Mycenaeans, ruled from golden Mycenae, as, as Homer tells us. Um, and again, a, 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 a patchwork of tiny little kingdoms ruled over by Agamemnon, um, uh, who was the, the king of Mycenae, according to Homer. Um, and then and then the other important thing is, is to the north uh, east of Troy, up you go up the Dardanelles through the Sea of Marmara um, into the Black Sea. Um, and then you've got the whole of what is now Russia. And there was a very, very considerable amount of trade going on from the Black Sea, furs and timbers and pitch and all sorts of things coming down. And it all came down through the Dardanelles to get ultimately to Greece, um, which meant that the Trojans controlled this huge amount of trade. And, I, and this was an incredibly sore point, it appears to have been an incredibly sore point with the Mycenaeans. And although it said, that the Trojan War was fought over the abduction of Helen. And, and indeed, that might, have, that might have been the immediate cause or the immediate excuse. But historians are thinking more and more that the war was actually a trade war. And it was the Mycenaeans trying to knock Troy out of the picture so that they could get direct access to the, the lucrative trade with the Baltic. So then, as now, Anya, it seems it was all over money. You know, that is so often the case. And I think there's two important factors, too, is that sort of in the Bronze Age, the role of the queens were very important. And, you know, Helen was, you know, royalty of Sparta, and they kind of were the okay. kingmakers, you know, and you think of the same thing with Penelope, that, um, you know, you, you see that there's a wealth element, and it, it really is so often the case. I, Recently, we were in Georgia as well, and uh, the story of Jason and Medea is another one where you find out, like, it wasn't just that there's a golden fleece, it's that the Colchi, kingdom of Colchi had this huge wealth, and uh, that was a main attraction. So I, I love that yeah. when we kind of find out these sort of historical reasons that make a lot of sense to us, that's a little bit less fantastic and a lot more just relatable. <laughs> Well, yes, yes, the fact that it was a war over trade, yes. I mean, that's, that, that's the modern historical take anyway. Um, but I think regardless of that, if the Trojan War took place, then probably it was an argument. It probably it was an argument over a woman that, that was the, the excuse or the spark um, to do that. And, um, and Helen's role is very interesting. Bessie Hughes is the one who, who, taught, who wrote so interestingly about the, 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 almost the hidden role of women when you when you read these epics it's all men bashing each other over the head with swords but you but but she dug a little deeper and actually pointed out that quite a lot of these women mentioned could actually have been quite influential um and helen helen being being one of them of course 
And and so what about the sort of archaeological evidence in, in this sort of story that kind of shows us this time period and the importance of, of these refugees? Well, okay, so the archaeological side is is has been very important is very important in this story. Um, and it's the it's where we get the sort of suggestion that 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 a little bit of the Aeneas we hear about from mythology could actually have been a real person. By the way, I think it's best with all this sort of thing is to to start with with the presumption that none of it's true. I think that's the safest place, isn't it? Um, and certainly, when I wrote a book about Brutus of Troy, who was our mythical the mythological founder of Britain. Um, I, I started from the point of view that he never existed, and indeed made this, came to the same conclusion at the end. But with Aeneas, there are just little hints that there could be some historical truth. So, so first of all, there's this cuneiform. Um, there's uh, the, the, the cuneiform tablets that, that archaeologists have been excavating all over the uh, Anatolia, the area of the Hittite Empire, and translating. Um, and in them, you just occasionally there are little references which might relate to the Trojan War. So, for example, there's, there's a, a, a description of the land of Willusia and the land of Tarawisa, which sound a bit like Homer's Troia and Ilion. He always has a, he, his by-names for everywhere. And so Willusia and Tarawisa could be Troia and Ilion, especially when you learn, as they linguists tell us, these very clever linguists tell us that that, um, that the Ionian Greeks like Homer tended to drop their W's from, so from Eleusia you get to Eleusia, and then you get to Ilion. Um, but those two places are, in a, are certainly in the area where we know Troy is, um, and they could actually be references to, to Troy uh, itself. Um, and and we learn from the Hittite cuneiform records that there was conflict with the Achaean Empire, with the Mycenaean Greeks. Um, we know that there were, there were wars. They're referred to quite obliquely. But there's one reference to the Willusa incident, which they think could just perhaps be the Trojan War. So what we learn from cuneiform fits in with what Homer was telling us and gives us a bit of a suggestion that it could all be true, but he's, we've never, there's never, they've never found a, a, a cuneiform tablet saying you know, Aeneas fought in the Trojan War or anything as neat as that. So we've got to wait for that evidence to come up. So that's cuneiform. And then secondly, there's the archaeology of the Iliad itself, digging into the text of the Iliad, and that's a fascinating thing. There's a whole chapter in my book about this, um, because there's a, quite a strong suggestion that Homer was not making up. A fantasy story like uh, that Tolkien did with the Lord of the Rings, uh, but that he was repeating and reusing genuine, genuine uh, oral tradition, genuine, genuine oral tradition. Um, and there are clues that come out of the text of the Iliad. Just to give you one example, his action is set in the 10th year of a 10 year war, he tells us. And at the beginning of the Iliad, at the beginning of the 10th year, he describes all the forces assembling to fight the battles. But when it comes to the Greeks, he does it ship by ship, as if the Greeks had only just arrived. And some of the people he describes, we know from other parts of the epic tradition, were either ill or not there at all, or even dead, which suggests that he was taking a much older list from an older, genuine oral tradition, and then just shifting it forward in time to the 10th year of the war. So things just things like that, um, which, which just give you sort of a hint. And also when he describes all the different cities that the Greeks came from, he's never been caught out 
writing about or singing or, or whatever he did. Just, he's never made. He's never been caught out mentioning a city that we know didn't exist in Mycenaean times. And yet the cities he does talk about, we know from archaeology were very important in Mycenaean times. And in some cases, we know that they had fallen into complete decay by Homer's time. So how did he know that that city that had fallen into ruin was important when, when the Trojan War was being fought, unless he was repeating genuine tradition? He didn't have any reference books. He didn't have the internet, you see. So, so, so that's, these are just suggestions. And, and if he was repeating genuine stories from a genuine Trojan War, then when he mentioned Aeneas and told us what Aeneas is doing, there's just a possibility that it actually happened and that it's true. Um, and then we come on to actual archaeology. Well, uh, when they wanted to find Troy itself, um, first of all, Frank Calvert and then Heinrich Schliemann took all the little references that Homer made in the Iliad to Troy, because he didn't, Homer didn't just provide a sort of big, full, grand description. But throughout, there are little details about what Troy was like and what the surroundings were like. And they took all these details and worked out that it was probably that hill there. And when Schliemann finally had enough money to dig in that hill there, what did they find? They found a city which, to a certain extent, matched what Homer had described. And then since then, excavations have gone on right the way through the 19th and, and through the 20th centuries. And the more they've found of Troy, the better it fits Homer's description of the city which is very exciting. And, and then when Homer describes the battles raging to and fro across the Troad, you get descriptions of landmarks. And um, you, you may well have been there. Have you been there? Uh, I've certainly been to Troy quite a few times. And the battles stories make absolute sense. You can stand on the plain of Troy, you work out where the landmarks are, and then everything Homer's telling you about, they went this way, they went that way, it all makes complete, perfect and utter sense. And it also extends out over the whole area, including where Aeneas came from up in the mountains. You can see Mount Ida just in the mornings and in the evenings when it's when it's less, when it's more hazy. When, in, in the middle of the daytime, you can't see it. But anyway, it, it emerges rather magically in the evening. You can see it. Um, and following his little hints about where Aeneas came from, and also actually other parts of the Greek epic tradition, which Strabo, the geographer Strabo, um, picked up and repeated. Uh, we were able to go up into Mount Ida and find a city following, I must say, Professor Cook at the British School in Athens, who did this in the 50s. We found this little ruined city right the way up the top of a mountain, which really did fit with what we'd been told about, what, what we'd been told that Anchises' city should have been like. Um, and from that, by studying the, the, the geography, the, the lay of the land, the lie of the land around there, and really going into detail, I even came up with a sort of theory as to how this most extraordinary and bizarre of stories that, that Aeneas was the son of a goddess could actually have come about. And that's what I've put in my book. Fantastic. So uh, can I ask if a lot of the sort of evidence or, or the materials that you're using for this sort of investigation is coming more from Homer than Virgil? Um, well, for, for the, what I've been just talking about there, it, that's absolutely Homer, uh, where we're dealing with Homer and the Iliad and then the rest of the Greek epic tradition, um, which has all been published. And actually, I can see behind you on your bookshelf, you've actually got, you've got some of the volumes there. 
Um, and so absolutely not from Virgil. What Vir Virgil is, uh, Virgil and the Roman side of Aeneas's story is another story. And that was made up entirely. And we know why. And I, we've, I've explained exactly why in my book. So what I'm talking about here is the, the, the Aeneas in Homer's Iliad um, and the tantalizing possibility that actually he may actually have existed. I, I love it. I, I mean, I love just thinking about uh, these myths in, in a different way. And when you sort of open up your mind a little bit to seeing some historical truth to them, you, you kind of take a, a new perspective on them. And I think that's really eye-opening. Um, but I, I'd like to discuss maybe Virgil a little bit, because, of course, that's what people think of when they think of Aeneas. Um, oh, and then they think about him as being sort of so central to the Roman myth. But how how can that myth then be so central to Rome's history if Virgil's edition was essentially propaganda? It was all made up. Um, well, I, I, propaganda, yes. I mean, in a way it was. It was Virgil's Aeneid is a, a work of propaganda. And it's what a, what a work of propaganda. It was one of the most beautiful, beautiful and moving poems ever written, uh, ever by anyone, ever. Um, and yet, yes, it was really there to, to it was following a, a political agenda, almost, almost following the Emperor Augustus's political agenda. Um, a, a beautifully crafted one. We have a lot of propaganda today and what a shabby load of old rubbish it really is. It's it's um, I think one, one of the things um, I think we, we get from studying ancient myths and the way the way the Romans used the myth of, the myth of Aeneas, it, I think, is very eye opening in itself but also actually i think it's quite useful in the modern world if you understand how uh, the emperor augustus used mythology to convince people that he was the most important person in the world and you've got to obey him um you can see how modern leaders are attempting in their shabby little ways <laughs> to do the same thing and it's quite easy to see through through the myths that they put out when you already know how the romans did it and did it a lot better um so yeah so 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 the core of Aeneas, as written about by Homer, might there might, might have been a real person there. Um, but when we come to the Roman story of, of um, Aeneas, which built up over the centuries and then finally took form in this wonderful um, poem that Virgil wrote, um, we're dealing with something which was entirely made up. Um, and um, uh, uh, the background, the background is 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 interesting because you can see. If you go go back to the sort of the seven hundreds, the eight hundreds BC, um, you you see a Rome, a tiny little Iron Age town with, if it had any origins, we don't know what really what they were, um, and they they began to encounter Greek merchants. Greek merchants began to come to visit them, um, and they became aware of the fact that there was this great country of Greece. <laughs> Um, all these countries that compose that comprise Greece with this extraordinary ancient culture, which was so powerful because it was written. That was the main thing. Um, and they began to be curious about how they fitted into the, the great panoply of, of Greek mythology. And of course, the Greeks were also always very interested. Whenever they found a, a foreign culture that was actually quite advanced, they wanted to fit it into their worldview through mythology. So they toyed with the idea of Odysseus when Odysseus left Troy. He went on his great odyssey. Um, so they toyed with the idea of Odysseus going uh, to Italy and laying the foundations for Rome. 
Um, you hear about that. And they toyed with the idea of Hercules passing through that way during his during his um, labours. Um, and maybe he laid the foundations for their civilization. <clears throat> um, and then finally, they ended up with, with this character, Aeneas, who actually was a very unlikely founding hero, because if you think about it, he, he was in a city which he failed to defend. Um, he, the best he could do was get out, um, as, as flee. Um, then he was a refugee. And, and you think, well, what sort of... Um, what sort of founding hero is that? And actually, as I've argued in my book, it seems that actually the first idea of the Romans being Trojans was an insult. Um, we had when King Pyrrhus of Epirus came to southern Italy, um, he uh, was trying to gain a foothold in southern Italy, and he came up against the Roman the Romans who were just beginning to expand their empire. Um, and on the eve of battle, I've written it down there, it's 279 BC, um, he, he was just about to fight a battle with them. And he made this recorded quip that he believed, by the way, he was a descendant of Achilles. He was a cousin of Alexander the Great, and they believed they were descended from Achilles. And he said, well, I'm the descendant of Achilles, and it looks like I'm going to be fighting a second Trojan War tomorrow. He said this. Um, and so he fought his battle, and it was the original Pyrrhic victory, because he won the battle against the Romans, but he lost so many men and so many, much armour and weapons and so many of his war elephants that he was forced to go back to Greece. And the Romans heard that this insult had been flung at them, that they were Trojans. And they say, well, OK, he was the descendant of, of Achilles, and that was a second Trojan War. And guess what? We won. And, and from that point onwards, they had their place in the, the world of classical mythology. And they said, yes, we're the Trojans and we're back. Yes, and our Rome is the second Troy. And it, from that came this idea that, that Aeneas had left Troy and come to Rome, or come to Italy, I should say. And from that came Rome and the Roman Empire. Um, and, and, and it gave them, I, I think, a huge amount of sort of self-confidence and strength. And, and later, when the Caesars claimed to be descended from Aeneas, well, they did that because Rome already had this story that, that, that the Romans had got there in the first place. So, so yeah, it was it was made up. It was a made up made up story um, because at that stage, everyone did make up stories as to how they fitted in um, into the Roman world, uh, into the Greek world. I mean, um, and um, and what a story it was, and what a story it became. So it's really interesting to think it, it, it reminds me of like the impressionists or something where, you know, you kind of have this sort of insult flung at them and they're like, wait, well, you know what, we're going to we're going to take that, embrace it and, and kind of make that our 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 name, you know, our branding. So you're right. You're right. I was trying to think there are examples. There are other examples of, of, of people learning some derogatory term that was being used about them and actually saying, oh, in fact, I quite like that. And well. Well, use that as where it as a badge of pride, and yeah, that's one of them. So yes, and that's what it was originally, because of course, that's when they adopted the myth. Rome wasn't the great thing we think of it now. They were going to be, well, we know they were going to become that, but they weren't. And and um, and yeah, and a lot of it was based on chance. And I think I say I, I do think often they drew great strength from from these myths because it gave them a cycle. It gave them the psychological push that they needed. Well, and, and and it's so powerful in the ancient world, especially this idea of calling on your descendants and your ancestors and, and like kind of connecting yourself to the sort of chain of history that, that we um, don't do as much these days. But I want to ask, yeah. how important was sort of the element of being a refugee 
in that story, though, because I mean, I know the ancient world was very at times sort of tribal with regards to like us versus them. You know, you think of the Greeks versus the barbarians. Um, was this ever an issue for the Romans, early Roman psyche? Well, I mean, they got they got their myth. They got this wonderful myth that connected them into the into the ancient world. But but it came with problems. And in the in the early versions of the story of Aeneas going to Italy, there there are well, there are all sorts of different versions, and some of them might be early Roman attempts to, to work it all out, and other others might be early Greek attempts. And they're all in my book. And at times, frankly, it got quite confusing writing this book because there are so many different versions. It's a biography of one man but one man with many different lives. Um, so you hear about Aeneas um, escape, escaping from Troy. He always escapes, but sometimes he escaped because he was a traitor. He he did he cut a deal with the Greeks and agreed to let them in, or he, he, he agreed to try and um, overthrow King Priam or something like that. Um, and 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 so and the Greeks in some versions let him go and let him sail off to Italy, you know, for, you know all, all the best. Um, <clears throat> there are other versions where he escaped from Troy. He didn't. Sorry, he didn't escape from Troy. He was taken from Troy as a prisoner and and ended up as a slave. And there are versions where Aeneas was no, nothing more at the end of his life than a slave of of, um, of Achilles' son, um, or indeed a refugee. Now I'm using that. As a, it's a modern, uh, obviously a modern term, isn't it? Yeah, and, um, <laughs> and 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 I, I find no no disrespect to people who actually are refugees, but it's not a great thing for a future founder of a country to be to, to be labelled as a refugee. And so, so when when you look at the way Virgil created the Aeneid, you can see him um, effectively taking all these different stories um, and sanitizing them really ignoring the ones he didn't like like uh, Aeneas being a slave or something like that um, and then and then trying to make the very best of the story to give the Romans as inspiring uh, a, a founding hero as as the Emperor Augustus wanted him to be and 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 with the escape from Troy Instead of it being a rather sort of shameful um, dash from the walls to sort of try and get away from the Greeks, um, Virgil makes a great deal of the fact that, that he he could have taken money with him, but he didn't. He could have taken women, he could have taken slaves, he could have taken his clothes, he could have taken his iPad, you know. Um, but no, he didn't. What did he take? He took his crippled father, who he could have just left behind. It was no use to anyone, but he took his crippled father because he was um, such a faithful son. And the, the gods, the, the the statues of the household gods of Troy, and he took those with him. And by doing so, his escape from Troy stopped being anything shameful. It stopped being anything which you didn't want to look back to. And it became this great act of piety. And Augustus, one thing, the one thing the Emperor Augustus wanted to be thought of more than anything else was he was a pious emperor, a pious ruler. Um, and Aeneas therefore became this very pious character. Piety is hinted at in the Iliad, but in the Iliad, really, he's an all-singing, all-dancing, more macho, Bronze Age warrior. <clears throat> but under Virgil, Aeneas becomes this extraordinarily pious man who's constantly praying to the gods, constantly aware of what the gods want, and constantly aware of the will of fate as he makes his journey across the Mediterranean, always putting the will of fate, his pious desire 
to obey the gods first. And and that's why he abandoned Dido. He would love to stay in Carthage with Dido. He was deeply in love with her. He was lovely, lovely time there. But fate decreed, the gods decreed that he should carry on to Italy. And so being the pious man he was, he left Dido behind and carried on on his journey. And there are numerous instances in the, in Virgil of, 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 of Aeneas being this pious king. And that was how Virgil dealt with this great sort of mess, melange of different um, stories which he'd inherited from the past. And he created this great paragon of, of Roman manhood because, of course, they, that's what the, Augustus wanted people reading the Aeneid to to be inspired to obey, well, obey him, really, never mind obeying the gods, obey the emperor. And um, and so, so they were, Virgil was trying to sort of give this sort of paragon of, 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 of manhood, of humanity um, to the Romans, which they probably hadn't had before. Um, and that was one of the reasons it was written. And of course, we can go into, we could another time go into the whole issue of how Virgil then subverted what Augustus wanted and and, and made actually Aeneas into somebody much more of a conscious, conscious, um, conscience, I should say, much more of a conscience than Augustus may have wished. Now, I, I thought it was really interesting you mentioning Dido, uh, just because I think that's always a, a difficulty that modern audiences have with the story because it seems so cruel to poor Dido. Um, but I think it is important to point out that to the Roman mind, um, that this was a sacrifice and he has made to the fates to, to, to fulfill his destiny. And that, that was, as you say, he's supposed to be seen as this very pious character and, you know, very noble. And that this act was, was a difficult and noble act rather than him being a scumbag, which is <laughs> kind of how uh, modern audiences, but it, it kind of brings me to the, to the bigger question of, you know, how the Romans perceived this story as a whole. Um, and this is something we I've discussed a lot with with um, with in our essential Greeks course about the role of the, the Iliad and the Odyssey, how the ancient Greeks viewed this story as historical. So how how much did the Romans believe in the story? It, both maybe from the Iliad version and from Virgil's version. Did they see this through the propaganda? Did they think there was some seed of truth to it? I mean, it, if it if it had the impact. That you've been saying it had to at some level they must have believed in it yeah well i mean we don't we don't really know do we we don't know what individual romans thought um or to what extent there's a book isn't it called that did the greeks believe their myths which actually i've never read i must read it sometime um but but the official line was very clear that 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 the aeneas myth was true um, and everyone, it was, it was written into the histories. It was written into the histories of Rome. So Livy, writing his history of Rome, um, start, started with with Aeneas, um, and the Caesars had adopted Aeneas as their ancestor. And you see, and I, I'm a genealogist, and I came at all at all of this from a genealogist's point of view. Um, and I've seen right the way through my career the way family myths can harden into facts in an incredibly short period of time. It doesn't take many generations. I mean, it can take two generations. Um, so in other words, Grandpa saying um, we're descended from Admiral Lord Collingwood, um, whereas in fact his mother, if, if she'd known the story properly, would have said, well, I think we're related to Admiral Lord Collingwood. Um, and her father saying, well, there's a Collingwood in the family, definitely. <laughs> um, and, and, and that's my family, by the way. Um, and, and we weren't. 
and 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 so actually with the Caesar with the with the Julian family, um, Caesar's family had only probably believed that they were descended from Aeneas for a couple of generations, but that's I know from my work, my daily work, that's absolutely long enough for it to be true, absolutely true, and people have a blind. I've got clients filed here where people have a blind faith that they're descended from this grand character or that grand character. Nothing I can do or say from my written evidence will shake their belief that this is the case. So that's why I'm so confident that that Caesar did what he did, because he he, he was absolutely confident that, that Aeneas was there up in heaven watching over him. Um, and um, of course, that brings me there are some interesting incidents, aren't there, in, in, in the story, which I've written about. Um, that when um, when Caesar died, uh, a comet suddenly appeared in the heavens, um, and so Augustus just quick. Well, he wasn't Augustus then; he was Octavian. He was Caesar's uh, great nephew and adopted son. <clears throat> and the person who was to become Augustus um, pointed, said, "Right there we are. There's that that comet is is my father Caesar going up in, up to heaven." Um, and there was no doubt about it. It was called the Julian Comet, and they made a great thing of it. Um, so that then sort of was one of the ways they were sort of enforcing the myth um, and making it. And also they took they took things which already existed in Rome. And you see this happening with the Catholic Church. And you see it happening with modern politics. They took things like the penance, um, which had been in Rome since goodness knows when. There were a couple of wooden statues um, and they were revered. Um, they were in the forum um, and they took these and they said, right. We believe that these penance were bought to Rome by or bought to Italy by Aeneas. And they cited a few bits of evidence which weren't really evidence at all. Um, and and so they established the story that the penance had been bought by Aeneas. And after a very short period of time, you find the fact that the penance were in Rome became evidence that Aeneas must have taken them there. So the penance then became evidence that Aeneas was, was real. And, and time and again with, with Roman mythology, you see you see things being sort of turned on their heads. And so, and, and, and I say that, that um, religions do it constantly. You see it with, with, with the Catholic Church constantly. Um, and, 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 you know, the fact, that, the fact that I exist is evidence that God must exist. And, and it's not, but, but you know, it, if they decide that's the way it's going to be, that's the way it's going to be. And so, uh, and so, yes. So, and so, when you, so, we don't know. Uh, educated Romans knew the story, and some of them would have, yes, believed it, and some of the sceptical ones might have said, no, she's probably all made up, but we'll keep quiet about it. Um, and what ordinary people thought, well, we don't really know. You'd have to ask Mary Beard; she's the one who really sort of studies that. But there is a, um, there is. A, I'm just minded of. Um, something I found while I was researching the book that there you have all these wonderful statues and images of Aeneas in Rome um but and in Pompeii there are various images of him and one of them is him and his father as dogs with rather rude bits you know emphasized um and there's the suggestion that actually one ordinary Roman or one ordinary um um Pompeian at any rate um, had quite a low opinion of this um, Roman story of Aeneas uh, and probably thought it was all a load of old hooey and just put up a rude cartoon about it. So so there we are. So we can speculate endlessly about that. Um, <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Of- you, it's good to see the kind of real 
evidence on both sides of the, of the ledgers. Yeah. But, but, I'd say, but, but let me say, yeah, in terms of overall, the overall entity that was the Roman Empire, I'd, I'd say generally they took it seriously and, and they, they had a serious, genuine belief in, 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 in it all being true. Yes, but overall, yes. Yeah. Otherwise, well, it wouldn't I, have worked. Yeah, well, that's it. That's exactly kind of what I was thinking when you were saying that, that, that what inspired Caesar and inspired all these future future uh, explorers and colonizers and whatnot, the, the idea that uh, that this was sort of part of the mission. Um, uh, now, I, I'd yeah. love to, to finish up because you've been so generous with your time, but you just referenced about the fact that you were, you know, that you are a, a genealogist. And I think that's wow. a very interesting perspective. And it's something I, I'm very uh, supportive of sort of intersectional studies, because I think a lot of times when you come from a different angle, you're going to see something that people who have been sort of in the niche field might not have. So how has this sort of um, opened up your eyes to kind of new angles? Well, yeah, I I, I would say, I'd, I'd say that I, 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 you, the classicists, you, you, and a lot of the people watching, you've had hundreds of years studying the classics to write a clear a clear biography of Aeneas and a, a clear account right the way through from his conception on Mount Ida, Mount Ida, right the way through his ascent into heaven to become a god. You've had hundreds of years to do it, and none of you have. Um, and I think possibly the reason is that uh, classicists, I think you're generally, you're very interested in reading the original Greek and the original Latin. I have huge admiration and respect for you to be able to do that. But I think just learning these languages must take up a vast amount of brain power. Um, so you haven't got the energy to, to then take on some ludicrously big and complicated task as as writing the biography of Aeneas. I mean, I mean, there it is, and that's that's sort of you know boiled down from you know from a great deal more material. Um, so I think I, I just had the sort of I had this not learning Greek and Latin. I just had a bit of extra brain capacity um, to do. It. And also as a genealogist, you see, you're used to you're used to just dealing with the you, you approached ancestor and I'll explain ancestor in a minute you approach them and you think okay when were they born um where and when were they born when and where do they marry uh when and where do they die where were they buried you just get the basic facts and then you begin to fill in details of their lives what their occupations were what they did what journeys they might have gone on and so i approached aeneas like that i just said right let's start with so i wasn't sort of stuck in some sort of complicated um analysis of the way virgil used used adverbs or, or anything like that or you know i was just sort of where was he born let's let's get to the bottom of that where did he die who did he marry that's quite a complicated question with a few wives and, and dido had her own opinion um but um and then, and then you just fill in the story and that's that's all i really did and then all i then i had to then try and explain how the whole myth had come about in the first place um which is takes up quite a bit of the book but i sort of interspersed that with the story to make it more interesting um, and I, I came to Aeneas as an ancestor, not a real ancestor, obviously, but as a mythological one, because in Britain, we have our own origin myth, which is the story of Brutus of Troy, who was supposed to have been a descendant of the Trojans who came to Britain, killed the giants who lived here, founded London and laid the foundations of what was become, what was become Britain. And I, I, wrote, I studied that and I wrote about him. Uh, and I was interested in Brutus because he was said to be the ancestor of the kings of Gwynedd in North Wales, who are in turn and real ancestors of the present royal family. 
and and masses and masses of other people, including most of your American presidents and and indeed me um, and, and loads of other people are descended from. Um, and 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 Brutus when when they invented the, Brutus was invented in the Dark Ages by um, Christian monks who looked back to the Roman Empire, rude to the fact that it had collapsed, that that era of peace and prosperity had gone. And it was an era when the Dark Age kings were trying to rebuild that and recreate that. Um, and so they wanted to root this founding hero of theirs in that lost, wonderful world of Rome. And so they made Brutus a great-grandson of Aeneas, so they could absolutely tie their efforts to create a new country, a new land of peace, into the old stories of the way the Romans, when, when Aeneas went down into Hades, um, he met his father Anchises, and Anchises said, other people can, other people can spin silver, other people can carve things out of marble, but you, you Romans, he said, your job is to spread the rule of law across the world and to, to, to help, the, help, help the humble and bring down tyrants. And, and this is what the Britons were hoping for through linking Brutus to back to Aeneas. Um, and so although these characters were mythological, Brutus totally mythological, Aeneas substantially mythological, they were claimed as ancestors by so many people. And they're still there in our family trees to this very day. Um, so that's how I came to him. And that's how I came to him. Um, with just as a as you would approach any ancestor, I thought I would like to understand this person, and so I I did. I I just did everything I could to to find him. And I used my I suppose analytical skills as a genealogist to do that. Um, and I I learned a lot about the classics, of course, in, in the process. And I'm sure there's a lot I still don't know. I'm sorry, no, there isn't. Um, but I think I managed to overall. <laughs> Um, get the idea of who Aeneas was and write it down in perhaps a reasonably coherent manner that other people can understand. Well, thank and you. Maybe, <laughs> I know, maybe make the stories more accessible as well to, to, to people who might be daunted by him as a classical figure, but actually when you approach him as an ancestor with an incredibly exciting story, um, I, I think you know he should be accessible to everybody. And I, I hope I've um, attempted, well, I've attempted to do that. Maybe I've even succeeded. I don't know. Well, thank you so much. And and I'm perfectly aligned with that sort of mission. I think um, one of our main aims at Classical Wisdom is to sort of <clears throat> illustrate how relevant and interesting the, the ancient world can be to us today. So uh, I'm grateful to to all those who kind of contribute to that that task. So um, thank you so much. <laughs> I, think, I think you're doing a fantastic job and, and, and keep, keep it up. And I think we need, in the modern world, as we're being bombarded with rubbish from politicians and from the media and we need to keep up a steady head and actually um, remembering the classics and remembering the Greek myths is actually a really good way of doing that so I think you're doing a fantastic job. Well thank you so much and uh, I'll put a link down below so everybody can find your book and check it out. And, and, and buy it. And buy yes, the book. yes. yes. <laughs> Important you, you need to buy it before you read it uh, and that they can to enjoy learning a little bit more about Nias. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. Classical Wisdom Society members can listen to the entire podcast on classicalwisdom.com.